Today we turn a corner in the story of Joseph. Up to this point, he's been on the short end of things. By the way, I'm in uh, chapter 41 of Genesis. But up to this point, Joseph has kind of always been on the short end of things. In part one of our summer series, he was thrown into a pit by his big brothers. Like Rod used to throw Randy into the pit. <laughs> we called it the, the, the uh, pit of adversity. And then he was sold into slavery. In part two... He served faithfully and diligently in the house of Potiphar. Part three was Joseph in temptation. Though he acted in integrity, part four finds Joseph in the prison of his circumstances. There in prison, he helped the chief of the butlers, but he was forgotten. Part five was Joseph in neglect. Today in part six, Joseph's hard work and faithfulness begin to pay off. Last week we saw how he helped the chief of Pharaoh's butlers who had a puzzling dream in prison and Joseph was there to interpret it for him. Three days later, the butler was restored to his position and on his way out the door, Joseph asked him to put in a good word for him with Pharaoh. But the Bible tells us the butler forgot. And yet the butler would prove to be a key figure in the rise of Joseph. Joseph was in neglect, but he was about to be in demand. Chapter 41, beginning in verse 1 of the book of Genesis, it says, It came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed. So at the end of two full years, that's a reference to when the butler had his dream. Joseph interpreted it. Said, remember to put a good word in for me with Pharaoh. The butler forgot at the end of two full years, Pharaoh dreamed. And behold, he stood by the river. And behold, there came up out of the river seven well-favored kine, it says in the King James, or cows, and fat fleshed, and they fed in a meadow. And behold, seven other cows came up after them, from the river, ill-favored and lean-fleshed, they stood by the other kine upon the brink of the river. And the ill-favored and lean-fleshed kine did eat up the seven well-favored and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. Verse 5, And he slept and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of corn came upon one stalk, rank and good. And behold, seven thin ears, blasted with the east wind, sprung up after them. And the seven thin ears devoured the seven rank and full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. It came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none that could interpret them unto Pharaoh. Verse 9, Then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults today. Verse 10, and this is the butler talking, Pharaoh was angry with his servants and he put me in ward, he put me in prison, the captain of the guard's house, me and the chief baker, and we dreamed a dream in one night, I and he, we dreamed each man according to the interpretation of his dream. And there was with us a young man, a Hebrew servant 
to the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted to us our dreams, to each man according to his dream did he interpret. And it came to pass as he interpreted to us. So it was unto me he restored into my office, and unto him, the baker, he was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself, changed his raiment, and he came in unto Pharaoh. Joseph had paid his dues, and now he was in demand. Now, the concept of paying our dues means to earn a position, to earn the respect of others by working hard, suffering hardships, or gaining the necessary skills and experience. In sports, a first-year player usually sits on the bench while more experienced teammates play. In a job setting, the new guys tend to get the tougher jobs. You have to pay your dues. Joseph had suffered all the rites of passage. He had earned his keep and he had worked his way up the ladder. Joseph learned in the house of Potiphar. He worked hard, he served with excellence, and he was given a position of influence. In the jail, rather than pout at his misfortune and the unjust way that he had been treated, Joseph worked hard, found favor, learned how to manage and organize prisoners. And once again, because of his unassailable attitude, his tremendous work ethic, and his trustworthy character, he rises to an administrative position. Joseph was faithful everywhere he went. Joseph always found a way to bloom where he was planted. He saw God in every situation, and he knew God was with him in, in the good times and the bad. And now he was in demand. Now his voice would be heard on a grander stage. But what we find is Joseph is the same guy in demand as he was in neglect. Circumstances don't seem to change who Joseph is. I'm not sure most of us can say that. Many of us are one way in one place and another way somewhere else. We're, we're one way at work, and we're another way at church. We're one way at home, and we're another way at school. We're one way when things go well, and we're another way when we find ourselves in a time of adversity. Now one explanation for the duplicity in Christians is the diminished role of discipleship in the modern church. Without the process of discipleship, our spiritual growth is stunted. Now let me say that again, because I, I think we're, we're missing this concept. Without the process of discipleship, our spiritual growth is stunted. Many don't even know what a disciple is. I'll give you the definition. A disciple is someone who systematically and progressively 
rearranges their life around becoming like Jesus. Now, I think the typical believer, the believer not interested in discipleship, squeezes Jesus into their existing life. That's what most believers do. They, they squeeze Jesus into what they already have going. A true disciple, church, hear me now, a true disciple rearranges his life. A true disciple rearranges his life around the process of becoming like Jesus. But we can barely attend church on a regular basis, much less Sunday school or small groups or actually take time to read the Bible or pray. The casual believer has better things to do. Discipleship is the grueling process of spiritual formation, which is the necessary precursor to spiritual maturity. Now, I'm going to say something here that, that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Let me say it. I, I posted that on Facebook, okay? Here's the quote. Discipleship is the grueling process of spiritual formation, which is the necessary precursor to spiritual maturity. I got about two likes. I mean, there's stuff we put on there that gets 150 likes and shares and comments. That gets like two likes. Now, I'm not saying you're failing because you're not liking the post. That's not my point. That's, my, that's why I fear saying that, because that's what I, I'm afraid you're going to hear. But my point is there's a reason we don't click like on that. Galatians 4.19 says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Joseph had paid his dues. Have we paid ours? Have you paid yours? Becoming a Christian isn't the end. It's the beginning. Christianity is not a destination. It's a doorway. The goal in spiritual formation is to get to the point in our maturity that the inner man and the outer man are the same. And that seems to be the case with Joseph, the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways of James 1.8. That just doesn't describe Joseph. As we grow in our relationship with Christ, we will increasingly become on the outside what we are on the inside. And this is the opposite of duplicity. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is having a facade, an exterior that is inconsistent with the inner man. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Joseph had been through a lot. He was a 17-year-old boy when he was sold into slavery. Now, standing before Pharaoh, he's a 30-year-old man, chiseled on the inside and on the out, strong of body and mature in character. He had paid his dues. And he recognized 
the significance of God with us. Joseph has an amazing story. I'm sure you agree. It's an, and it's impossible not to see God in it. The links of the chain of divine providence are incredible. The favor of his father. The strange dreams of future prominence. The jealousy of his brothers. Sold into slavery. Brought to Egypt where the slave market is booming. Purchased by Potiphar. A baseless rape charge by Potiphar's wife. Remanded to jail. Favored by the keeper of the prison. As a result, his path happens to cross with two state officials the accurate interpretation of the butler's dream, and the stage is set. Fair Joseph is in demand. I read that, and I, I have to step back in wonder. And I think to myself, oh, the omnipotence of God. Oh, the foresight and the wisdom of God. Who can know him? Who can question him? It's as though time stands still before him. He doesn't miss a detail. He knows how every thread plays into the marvelous tapestry that we call life. He, he knows it all. It's all ever before him. He dwells in an eternal now. He never sleeps, nor does he slumber. Not one iota of detail slips past his all-seeing eye. There's no chance. There's no luck. There's simply the plan of God and our decision to conform to it or not. The year was 1991. It was long before, long before I ever dreamed of being in ministry. I had just served a three-year term on the board of deacons here at Central Assembly. This was in the days when you were elected by vote and not selected by lot as we do now. It was also in the days when you could serve two consecutive terms. And up to that point in our history, the incumbents, the guys who had already served a term, were always re-elected. I was not re-elected. I was voted out. Now, it's, it was very difficult on a number of fronts. And anybody who's been through this knows. It's a, it's a blow to your ego. It, it pricks the flesh. It reaffirmed all my rejection issues. And in a situation like that, you're left with choices. You can kick and scream and leave the church. You can bemoan all you've done and how no one appreciated it. I was speaking to a guy, this is a number of years ago, uh, that went to another church here in town. And as we were talking, he was telling me how he's going to a new church, a different church. And I asked him why, and he said that he had painted the church bus at his old church, and they didn't thank him from the pulpit. When you're hurt or offended at church, you, you can leave. Or you can try to find God in it. What's God trying to teach me? What do I need to learn from this? What quality is God hoping to form in me? These are the questions we need to ask in the midst of our dark hours. 
I'm very thankful that both Dennis LaRochelle and I were in the same situation back in 1991. He, he brought stability to how I handled it. So I chose the latter approach. I, I sought God in it. I believed there was a greater good being accomplished. I chose to believe that God was with me. Now had I left, I obviously wouldn't be the pastor now, but, but the interesting thing about that is I wouldn't even know what I missed out on. Even back in 1991, God saw it all. I admit, I I still don't quite get it. This guy who was voted out as deacon, 18 years later, was voted in as pastor of the same church by a 67 to 2 with one abstention vote. And my mom was most upset about the abstention, by the way. (laughs) When I stopped at her house after, hey, mom, I was voted in as pastor, 67 to 2 with one abstention. Who would abstain? I said, Ma, what about the two that voted against me? But who would abstain? (laughs) People leave churches all the time. Uh, It reminds me of the story of the guy that was on the deserted island for five years, all by himself, deserted island. Finally, he gets rescued. And as they're leaving the lagoon... And they're on, he's on the boat, been on this island for five years. One of the rescuers says to him, man, five years all by yourself on that island. He says, that's amazing. He says, but tell me, what are those three huts on the shore? And the guy being rescued says, well, the hut in the middle, that's my house. That's where I live. And the guy says, well, what's the, house, the hut on the left? He says, well, that's the church I go to. He said, well, what's the hut on the right? And he says, that's the church I used to go to. Had some issues at church, apparently. (laughs) Joseph handled adversity well. So how should we handle problems in the church? Allow me to deviate from our path here to touch on this. How do we handle problems in the church? I'm going to give you a, a list of six things. Number one, pray. So you're hurt, you're offended... You've got a disagreement, you're struggling, pray. Allow time for the hurt to subside. This is good advice. Pray, allow time for the hurt to subside. Don't react. Don't commit to leaving. I think one mistake that people make is in the midst of their hurt, they commit to leaving. Some celebrities committed to leaving the country when Donald Trump was elected. They should have maybe waited a while and allowed their emotions to to settle. So pray, allow time for your hurt to subside. Number two, talk only to the person or to the people involved. This is very biblical. This is the Matthew 18 principle. Do not spread your offense to others. Hear me, church. There's, There's nothing I'll say today that's more important than this. If you're, if you're talking about your offense to someone that's not involved, you're spreading discontent in the church. And the tragedy of that is many times you'll end up talking to the right person, 
You'll get the situation resolved, but you've talked to other people and they're still carrying the offense. You've, you've spread discontent. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says this, and it says this almost exactly. There's six things that God hates. No way. Seven. And the seventh thing is he that sows discord amongst the brethren. Take that seriously, church. Number three, if it's still unresolved after talking to the people, then go to the person in charge. If it's a nursery issue, talk to the person that, that you have the issue with. If you don't get results, talk to the person in charge of the nursery. Talk to the person in charge. Number four, think big picture. Think big picture. Listen, and I know this is hard to see in the moment, but the legacy you leave is bigger than the issue at hand. People left this church back in the 1980s because they didn't like the pastors. Those pastors have been gone for 30 years. We need to think big picture. The lesson you teach your kids and what you model for your neighbors is more important than the issue at church. Think big picture. Number five, if you don't get satisfaction, assume there's more to the story. I'm here to tell you this morning, there often is more to the story. Number six, pray. We're back to pray. Start with prayer. We end with prayer. What should you pray for? First of all, pray for the person in charge. Pray for the person in charge. Number two, pray for the situation. Number three, pray for the will of God. And finally, pray for your own heart. Don't forget that. Maybe it's less about the issue and more about the heart than we think. You see, to me, church is family. You need your, to let your roots run deep. We need to put up with each other sometimes. We love each other through it all. We don't always agree, but we always love each other. And we're committed to one another. If you endure the conflict and the hurt, this is the interesting part, if you endure the conflict and the hurt, in the end, you're closer still. And that's what the enemy doesn't want. Conflict, you see, is the inevitable result of growing intimacy. If we are close, we will have conflict. Now we just need to learn how to navigate the conflict. That's what mature people do. That's what family does. All right, back to our story and Joseph's. Joseph's destiny fulfilled. Joseph had paid his dues. He managed to see God in every situation he found himself in. He always found a way to bloom where he was planted. He had stayed faithful and he had run his course well. And now his day had arrived. Joseph was in demand. Pharaoh had dreamed a dream. And none of his magicians, none of his wise men had a clue. But the butler knew that Joseph could interpret it. God would make foolish the wisdom of the world. A lowly Hebrew prisoner 
who hears from God would outsmart the wisest men of Egypt, the greatest nation on earth at the time. Genesis 41, 14 says, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. All of Joseph's life was preparation for this day. He had embraced the process. He had embraced the process. He had learned and grown and matured. He sought the will of God. He did his best to move in harmony with the one who knew the end from the beginning. And now his time had come. Opportunity would tap him on the proverbial shoulder, and he was ready. This would be his hour, his moment. So I find it interesting that verse 14 says he shaved and changed his clothes. And he stood before Pharaoh. Verses 15 through 32 is Pharaoh's dream and the interpretation of it according to Joseph. And it's interesting to me that as they look to Joseph for the interpretation, again, Joseph, just as he did in prison, acknowledges his source. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it says, and said, It is not in me. God will give you an answer. So Pharaoh laid out the dream. In the dream, he stands on the bank of the river, a clear reference to the Nile, which, is, which was the source of life and prosperity in Egypt. Seven fat cows come out of the Nile, and they're eaten by seven emaciated cows. Seven full ears of corn are eaten by seven withered and blighted ears of corn. And Pharaoh waits for the interpretation. Joseph pointed out that the two dreams are one. The seven good cows and the seven good ears of corn both indicate seven years of plenty, seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt. The seven thin and ill-favored cows and the seven empty ears of corn both refer to seven years of famine. The dream indicates seven years of prosperity throughout all of Egypt, followed immediately by seven years of severe famine that will consume the land. The dream occurred twice, Joseph says, because it is established and it will happen. I'm sure Pharaoh wondered what would come next. Imagine this interpretation. What did it all mean for him and for the country that he ruled over? And he was still trying to digest it all when Joseph steps into the void, beginning in verse 33. Now therefore, let Pharaoh look for a man, Joseph says. Let Pharaoh look for a man wise and discreet and set him over Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint officers over the land. Take up a fifth part of the corn and the grain of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that come and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Verse 36, And that food shall be for store to the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, and the, that, that the land perish not through the famine. And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. Verse 38, And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Joseph had laid out the job description as though he read it off his own resume. And remember, Pharaoh's already 
disappointed with his own wise men, supposedly the best Egypt had to offer. So Pharaoh makes a bold and decisive pronouncement in verse 39. For as much as God has showed you all of this, there is none so discreet, there is none so wise as you. Verse 40, you shall be over my house, and according to your word shall all the people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. Joseph is in demand. Verse 42, Pharaoh took off the ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, arrayed him in vestures of fine linen, put on a gold chain around his neck, made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, bow the knee, and they made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee no man lifts up his hand or foot in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath Paaneah, and he gave him a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Not to be confused with Potiphar, Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Verse 46, And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth in handfuls. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt. He laid up the food in the cities and the food of the field. And was round about every city, he laid up the same. Verse 49, Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea very much until he left off numbering. He couldn't keep track anymore. Joseph saw himself as the man to lead Egypt. Remember our definition of humility from a week or two ago. It's seeing yourself as you really are. It's seeing yourself as God sees you. And that's the only way you can possibly step into the fullness of the call of God upon your life. He had paid his dues. He had learned to lead people and administrate processes and procedures. He could, he could run a household like Potiphar's. He could run a prison. And now he would have the opportunity to save a nation. Joseph was in demand. Joseph was an amazing type of Christ. Their journeys strikingly similar. Joseph pictured the coming Savior who would be sent to save the world. Both Jesus and Joseph were despised. Both their brothers refused to believe they would rule and reign. Both were conspired against. Both Jesus and Joseph went to Egypt. Both were arrested. Both were falsely accused. Both had two prisoners with them one of which was delivered and one condemned. Both were tempted and resisted sin. Both were separated from their fathers. Both were sold. Both showed great love. Both had great power and authority. Both helped preserve life. Both were presumed dead and found to be alive. Both were reunited with their brethren. Both showed compassion. Joseph forgave his brothers and Jesus forgave the Roman soldiers. Now, there are many other similarities and parallels that could be listed. 
None more significant. None more telling than Joseph's name being changed to Zaph Nath Paneah, which translated means Savior of the world. Joseph is a wonderful type of Christ, an amazing picture of the one sent to save the world. So, so what can we glean from all of this today? It's a great story, but what can we glean from all this today? How about the value of the process? Joseph paid his dues, and God was with him every step of the way, even when he couldn't feel him there. Joseph still walked by faith and not by sight. And eventually, Joseph's destiny was fulfilled. Eventually, he stood before Pharaoh, and he was in demand. He had stayed the course. He had followed the path of life where the will of God and where the blessing of God could find him. The Bible says this. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It says, for I know the plans that I have for you. I know the plans that I have for you, saith the Lord. They're plans for good and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. It's a great verse. But you have to trust it. It's a great verse, but you have to believe it. It's not just a words written in a page somewhere. It's not just a Bible verse that's out there. You have to believe it. I know the plans that I have for you, Deb. Marlon, God would say to you, I know the plans that I, that I have for you. Mike, God would say to you today, I know the plans that I have for you. The plans for good and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. It has to be that personal. Karen, I know the plans that I have for you. The plans for good and not for evil. Lori, Marie, I know the plans that I have for you. Randy. They're plans for good and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. You may not be able to see the end. Sometimes you're not even able to see the next step. But you have to trust God. Pay your dues. Remember God is with you. And in the end, if you stay the course, you'll fulfill your destiny. If you're here this morning and something about that resonates with you, would you just slip up your hand? Would you just say, there's something in there that feels like it's, it's for me today.
All right, you can put your hands down. You know, the hard part about it is that you're living it one step at a time, a little increment at a time. And there's so many times that you feel like reacting. There's so many times that you feel like being right. It's not always about being right. Joseph was right a lot and still got the short end of things. But he endured because he saw, maybe he didn't even see it, he chose to believe that God was in this and that he would walk the course faithfully. Betrayed by his brothers. Sold into slavery. Why him? What did he do to deserve that? Served faithfully in the house of Potiphar. Falsely accused. Tossed into prison. Serves faithfully there. Helps out the butler. The butler forgets him. Years pass. One day, they call for Joseph. Shaves and changes his clothes. Stands before Pharaoh. Are you ready for the day that Pharaoh calls? Have you paid your dues? Have you been faithful to the process? Have you walked the road of discipleship? Do you systematically and progressively rearrange your life around becoming like Jesus? Or do you squeeze Jesus into what you got going? That's the question. Lord, I, we see ourselves in this story. We want to be faithful. But there's a part of us that wants desperately to be right. Lord, I pray you'd help us to surrender that part of us. And to just choose to walk in faithfulness. To be the man, to be the woman of God that you've called us to be. To bring glory and honor to your name. Not only by the things that we say, but by the way we live our life. Lord, I think of Joseph's unassailable character, his attitude, his work ethic, his trustworthiness, the life that he lived, even in neglect. And one day he found himself in demand. That's the way I want to live my life. Lord, for the one that's here today, who's never experienced you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would surrender it all to you. They would just give it to you. Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive my sins. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness because of your work on Calvary's cross. The substitutionary principle where the one who knew no sin became sin for us. Lord, that we might be cleansed and made right. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And family, 